Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Today, my guest is Julian McCormack from Platinum Asset Management. I met Julian at an investor day put on by the Australian Stock Exchange. I'd highly recommend going to the ASX website and joining up for their events. You can spend a lifetime reading, but hearing the experts speaking and meeting them face to face can supercharge your share market education. Julian spoke about Platinum's approach to investment management. They identify and invest in companies they believe to be undervalued. His case study is the German car company BMW. I want you to pay attention to some of the concepts he talks about. There's price earnings ratio, which is one of the basic ways of valuing a company, and also book value. I'll explain these concepts further on the blog post for this episode. I'll also include Julian's video presentation. Now, this is not a recommendation to run out and buy shares in BMW. This is purely an exercise in valuing a company for you to learn from. Julian, you're an investment specialist with Platinum Asset Management. Correct. You first joined Platinum in 2001 and then quit in 2002. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and went travelling. That's right. Yeah, okay. And then you worked at Credit Suisse in metals and mining before starting your own minerals exploration company. And now you're with the Basic Industries Analytical Team. Do you want to expand a little bit more about your career? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good summary. Um, I got this wonderful job at, at Platinum, but had, had committed to go travelling. And back in the old days, it was... Uh, it was verboten to uh, to leave and come back. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I had a brief conversation with Care about leaving in two thousand and two. I think it was. Um, took off and travelled for a year, which was great. So that was sort of, sort of wonderful. Probably probably cost me a bit of money in terms of how Platinum went thereafter. But um, I, I had that I had that sort of great experience at that time. And you know how those experiences in your early twenties are so formative. So this sort of value investing contrarian things sort of sort of sunk in but in all honesty it was awful getting a job back in those days in 2002 and 3 remember there was that tremendous bear market but a real one not not a sort of little flash in the pan it was grinding it was awful you just knew the market would be down 20 points every day um and it was a bit before you know the excitement of the mining boom you know the coal price was 20 bucks the iron ore price was 40 bucks. So that was all in mining. And, and mining's a nice business where you can actually understand the cost base of a business. It's not like a widget business like, like Apple, where you're mm-hmm. just sort of guessing all the time. You can actually know, you know, if you, you move this many tons of dirt and there's this much stuff in it that's of value, you get a good sense of how the business The, the, the numbers are easy to understand, yeah, that's I believe. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. And they're real. They're actually, you know, they're, they're deterministic. You can yeah. sort of know things, which is kind of nice. Um, anyway, I quit that to have a go at my own thing, and and um, that that the one good bit of that of a few years of work was one thing called Valiant Resources, which is you know one, one day it'll be worth quite a bit of money. It might be worth a bit today. But is this your mining exploration this is the mining company exploration thing? Yeah. So yeah. it's a, it's a metallurgical coal mm. explorer and developer in Queensland. It's got a huge deposit up in Queensland. But if you or your listeners are familiar with the 
shape of the price graph of Met Coal. I founded that with a couple of other guys in 2011. So by 2014, I was, you know, my beak was pretty dry. <laughs> the price only went one one way for the whole time. But it, it, it's an interesting asset that we've got a lot of data around. It didn't need a whole lot of work, so that could just be put on care and maintenance type thing. And so, what what first attracted you to financial services? That's where the money is. That was it. You just <laughs> went, at a young age just decided that's, that's where right. the money is. Well, I had I really had no idea what I wanted yeah. to do. Also, though, my old man worked in you know, planning and stuff. So he'd, he'd worked at places like IPAC and uh, BT back in the old days and Armstrong Jones. And, and then, you know, I sort of just figured, look, if I'm going to have to work for a living, if we, if we, if we really do have to do this capitalist thing, <laughs> I think I want to get quite well paid for it. <laughs> so that was kind of the thought process. It, it turns out, actually, we've got a few young listeners and who are interested in this. What advice would you give them if they want to get into the financial services industry? Well, the first bit is do it. You know, the first bit of advice is do it. So, so re- and read all the books, right? So, so ha- hasten slowly. Don't waste your money too much. But, you know, you do, you do. If you've got five hundred bucks in an internet connection, you can invest. So, so, so that's the best way to learn. But before you do that, you do want to read. You know, oh, you know all, all the Buffett biographies. So Buffett, American capitalist, um, the Peter Lynch books. So one up on Wall Street and beating the street. The old Soros books are good, so The Alchemy of Finance, um, uh, Open Society Endangered, um, um, uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Um, Jesse well, Livermore. Yeah, we've, well, we've discussed it, exactly. Jesse Livermore. All, all these old classics, yeah. read, read them all, mm-hmm. but invest and demonstrate an interest in it. And, mm. and, not just, and don't do it for the sake of having it on your CV. Do it because you want to do it. And, and once that becomes clear, that's the most important thing. And this yeah. is good advice for a beginner in the share game anyway, whether, 100%. You, whether you want to work in financial services yeah. or not. Yeah, 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 100%. So, but then the other part is it is a competitive world and you do want to give yourself all the arrows in the quiver. So you do have to work hard. So Platinum, where you work, yeah. you invest in international shares only, yeah. don't you? Yeah. I think there's lots of figures that show how little... Australian investors and uh, SMSFs invest in international shares. Mm. Why should um, investors in Australia be investing in international shares? A, we're not very much of the market globally down here, and we don't have great depth in most sectors. We've got these gigantic banks, you know, so so four of the top 10 banks, I think, um, by asset size, maybe four of the top 20 um, globally, plus the massive resources guys, so BHP and Rio, and so the rest of the market's pretty thin, you know. So, so even, you know, we're a consumer economy. So even in the retailing sector, we're pretty thin. You know, when you go and look at the diversity of stuff that there is elsewhere, but you know, then you get into biotech or information tech or software as a service or chip makers or oil field services or whatever it is. There's just so much more diversity of that stuff on offer externally. So that then translates into some funny valuation mismatches right so we don't own csl wonderful business but it's a bit expensive we can buy a stock that look well a company that looks a bit like csl has a sort of csl embedded within it called takeda in japan for a third of the valuation it's not that markets in general are on their face expensive they're not. They're about average. Mm-hmm. But within that, there's all this stuff that's super expensive, so software as a service or whatever. Mm-hmm. The corollary of that, so average valuations with some stuff that's very expensive, is there's some stuff that's incredibly cheap. 
and and there's lots of it, and it's it's oftentimes pretty good. Mm-hmm. Right. So so my favorite example is BMW. Well, that's a great segue into yeah. our discussion about BMW yeah. because I went, we we met at the ASX Investor Day. Yep. And your presentation was basically about BMW and yep. why you think it's such a great stock. And what I love about it is it's familiar to people. Yeah. It's, it's not like Micron who makes, you know, semiconductor chips or, mm-hmm. or, or Samsung who th- people think they know because it's they make yeah. a Samsung phone. They, they make DRAM and NAND. It, this is familiar. They know the product. They get a sense of what the business is. They, they can actually sort of touch and feel it. Yeah. And, and it's got a great history as well. Yeah. It's a fascinating history. So, so that, that circle divided into four, it's the colors of Bavaria, but it's also a, is a stylized propeller. So you know how propellers make that blur um, when when you look at them, <laughs> many many youngsters won't. This is on the badge, it, isn't it? Won't, yeah. won't know what a propeller is. <laughs> um, they they made uh, aeroplane engines for the Luftwaffe. So you know they, they made uh, they were a general industrial company. They began to make motorcycles. Um, they combined with another company, so BMW combined with another company that made uh, plane engines. And the the big customer for that became the German Air Force. That was basically bought out of insolvency. Mm-hmm. Right? So that the assets were still there. They'd been pretty heavily damaged, but there was a there was a fundamental base there and a skilled worker base as well. One family um, over time became the sort of majority. Well, became the majority shareholder of that. They're called the Quand family in Germany. Q U A N D T. Uh, they still own forty five percent of the business. Um, BMW was the insurgent, the upstart, the the, the disruptor, if you will but with enormous focus on quality. So you know, that whole German engineering thing um, really seeped into the brand, by, certainly by the 80s. You know, um, and, and just as an aside here, yeah. something that other guests have said is that yeah. it's very worthwhile investing in businesses where the owners have skin in the game, where the owners are actually... Exactly. Uh, and this is the, the case with uh, BMW. Exactly. Yeah. And the behaviour of that is not getting rewarded in markets, by the way. So what is getting rewarded in markets is levering up the balance sheet, paying out massive dividends and doing buybacks. You know, so, so what we see in the States is capital light businesses that borrow money to pay dividends and do buybacks. That's a, that's a pretty short game. You know, that, that's people remunerating themselves next quarter. That's mm-hmm. not people thinking about the next generation of owners. Mm-hmm. And so one can be pretty assured that when this is a family-controlled German industrial with that heritage – we actually know we're not going to get too many fools tolerated for too long. Yeah. Um, and so, so BMW has been terribly methodical amidst enormous change in the industry. So, so everybody will know that electric vehicles are here. Everybody will know that Tesla is the great insurgent of its day. But what people will perhaps be surprised by is BMW started planning for electrification of the drivetrain in 2008. They, they released their um, early EVs in 2013. They are the fourth biggest um, EV, so electric vehicle maker and seller in the world. You know, um, they sell mostly these sort of little boxy, tinny um, i3 things, I think they're called. But they have some that are amazing. So, so if people want to see them, go, go and look at a BMW i8. i8, it's I know. <laughs> what a car. What a car. <laughs> it's a hybrid, but it's uh, yeah, exactly. mainly EV. But exactly. Was it two litres per 100 kilometres? Yeah, I mean, and a, and a beast of a thing. Yeah, and it's and, a supercar performance. Exactly. Yeah. And so what is really interesting about this is so much of the electrification thing is not about the environment. It's actually about performance. But it's being driven by regulation. 
So it's, it's um, the EU and China's fleet emission standards that are driving electrification. So um, we think at Platinum, our, our autos guys think the best we can get to across a fleet with, with internal combustion engines is something like maybe 120, 125 grams of carbon emitted per kilometre. Fleet emission standards in Europe mean you have to get down to 90 and in China, and that's by 2022, and in China you have to get down to 110. So, so you must have stuff that isn't internal combustion regardless of how efficient you are, and that's what's driving this. That is why the whole industry is moving this way because they are the two biggest automotive markets in the world, Europe mm. and China. Mm. So, so that's what's driving the change, and it feels to people like one company is sort of winning because they've got all the models out and People and, and Elon Musk makes a lot of noise and, and, and is full of chutzpah and probably in some sense is a wonderful CEO because he attracts so much attention and, and probably lowers his cost of capital by doing so. But that is the reverse of what German engineering is about. You know, that, that sort of, look, we're just going to make it on the fly. We'll change stuff as we go. Two years after we announce it, we'll have a model out. And now I've got a truck and now I've got the Model Y and now I've got the new Roadster and blah, blah, blah. Real automotive companies don't do that. And maybe that's methodical and plotting and old worldy. But what it means is you make money on the cars. <laughs> Pretty simple. Mm. So at BMW, we've done all of this work. We've done 500 million euro per year of research on this stuff for a decade. We know the battery forms we want. We know the models we're going to re release five years forward. We know that, you know, so, so right now in the UK, I think a quarter of all cars that are sold in the BMW fleet are plug-in hybrid. Th these guys are, they're into it. It's happening and it's, and it's not reflected in the share price. So all of that heritage, all of that investment and all that Quality, long term, exactly. Brand all, value. Exactly. All that long-term thinking is being given away. Because the equity market is saying, oh, no, because these old legacy autos are hopeless. They're, 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 they're worthless things. And so, therefore, on a sort of enterprise value basis, so, so equity plus the debt in it, Tesla is about the same price as BMW. And Tesla will do generously 300,000 cars a year. And at BM, we're doing two and a half million. And we make money on the cars, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting start point. It, that's comparative, though. So, so just the, the fundamentals of the thing are probably more interesting. We're getting a 5.5% dividend. Okay. This is where I wanted to yeah, dig yeah, down because I've, I've got the quotes here. Okay. So with BMW, it's mm. on an earnings multiple that's very low. Seven times forward earnings, yep. five times past earnings. Yep. Just yep. tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> let, let's turn that multiple into a rate because mm -hmm. we all understand percentages. And, and so you know, people in finance are not very smart. And they, they seek to obfuscate. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there's nothing magical about a, a multiple, an earnings multiple. If you invert that, you get a, you get a percentage. So mm -hmm. one over the number gives you a percentage. So, so one over seven, we're getting about 14% in profit for equity that we buy in the business today. We don't get it all as a dividend. So hang on. Okay. Um, so if you buy the share yep. today, yep. how does that reflect in those numbers? So for one dollar... Yep. of equity that I buy, of, mm -hmm. of shares that I buy, I get 14%, 14 cents per dollar in profit. Per year? Per, per year. Mm -hmm. Per year. So that thing is going to pay me back in seven years, just in profits. Now, I won't get all that as a dividend because hopefully, hopefully, um, 
it, some of it goes back into the business and compounds at a good rate. Now, this is a sort of mid-teens return on capital business. That is a lot better than you're going to get in a bank. Mm-hmm. So, so if you put a dollar into a bank, you'd get, I don't know, 2% or something. If you, if you put a dollar into BMW, you get 14% in profit. And, and of that profit, it will compound in the mid-teens. So you don't just get it once. Right, you get- so some of, the, some of it's dividend, yep. and then some of that money is reinvested yep. into the business, exactly. which then grows the business exactly. and increases the value exactly. of the business? Exactly. And okay. so, and so, we, so we get five and a half of a divvy, and mm-hmm. so we get nine left in the business. Five and a half percent. Percent as a dividend, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's paid out to me as an equity holder. Mm-hmm. I can be pretty assured that I'll get that. Because the Quand family don't make any money unless they get divvies. <laughs> so that's quite nice. Mm. They're on our side. They've um, got no other way of making money really out of it, have they? Oh, they've got plenty of dough elsewhere. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> don't well, obviously, yeah, yeah. But in terms family. of just looking at uh, as right. a single business. As no, a that's unit. Right. Yeah. That's right. They're not employed in the business. They're not, you know, they are a straight equity holder. Mm-hmm. So that, that setup is telling you really that the market thinks that this business either can't grow or is sort of structurally impaired somehow. That's roughly the kind of valuation you were getting in the GFC Mm -hmm. when the world was pretty bad. Another reflection of that is price to book. So, So the amount of investment, the amount of equity capital that's ever gone into that business, less depreciation. Okay, let's dig deep. Yeah. Here and uh, uncover what you've just said. Yeah. Okay, for someone who knows nothing about valuing a business. Yeah. Can you explain that a bit more? Sure. Fundamentally. So, so we can only we can only um, we can only finance a business one of two ways. We can put equity in, and we don't necessarily get paid back, but we get the profits. Or we can put debt in, and we do get paid back plus an interest rate, but we don't get the profits. So we've got sort of uncertainty and upside versus certainty and no upside. When when we're buying stuff at equity value, so when we buy it at book. Um, that they're interchangeable, book value and equity value, same thing. When we get that, what what we're getting as a market pricing is the value of all of the equity capital that's ever gone in to that business, mm-hmm. less anything that's been depreciated or written off. So that that's a pretty good measure. It, it, there's nothing definitional about that, but it's a good measure of how fundamentally cheap something really is. Right, so in the case of an automotive business, if the, if these guys had been really lazy and hadn't invested in their business and weren't ready for electrification, you might actually price the book at a discount because you might think, oh, hang on, these guys are under investing and they're going to have to put plow so much money back into this business that there's no way they've got to play catch up. They've got to play catch up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That that's actually the inverse of what the case is with this firm. You know, this firm is ready to go. You know, they have to take a very slight earnings hit depending on their pricing to get to full compliance with EU 2020, yep. which is the leading um, regulation in the world. So, so that's really interesting because we're buying this thing on 0.7 of book, mm-hmm. right? So, so 0.7 of the value of the equity investment in the thing ever. And we're getting that at, at this kind of discount. And, and most interestingly, that's about the lowest it's ever been. So in any recession, in the GFC, anytime. That's mm-hmm. as cheap as it's been. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, but that's not the end of the story, is it? No, exactly. <laughs> there's because more. To, there's better, the, that gets better, doesn't right, it? That's right. That's right. Thank you for reminding me because the balance sheet's ridiculous. Yeah, this thing is so conservatively... And the balance sheet is... So, so the assets of the business. So we've, all, all the stuff we've been Everything about, that they own. Yep. That's right. And remember, we, we, we can finance this with debt or equity. Mm-hmm. There's a wrinkle to that because this, this business has a pretty high financing component to it. That is incredibly conservatively geared. So an average bank will be 10 to 15 times geared. I think we're four or five times, we, we are four or five times geared in the financing business and the financing business. So, so that is, I want to go in and I want to buy a car, but I don't want to cut a check for 75,000 bucks. How about I give you a down payment of 10 or 15 and pay you back over the next five years? That then becomes a receivable because that's going to get paid back to that business. Mm-hmm. Or we're selling into lease fleets. And so the, the, the leasing thing is I still own the car, but I'm getting paid for the... For the so BMW still own the car, yeah. but they, they're getting the... So we have lease assets and mm-hmm. financing receivables. Mm-hmm. So net of those things and the cash on the balance sheet, we're getting this, the automotive business here for free. Right? That's remarkable. And, and also, I don't want to give people the, the impression this is real smoke and mirrors type house of cards stuff. We made money in the financing business in 2009. We took a write down, but we had a positive, positive return on, on equity in the financing business in 2009. So, so this is a very conservatively put together business all the way through its core. And, and having that sense of what the heritage of the business is, one might get a sense of why, because we're running it to be intergenerational. You know, we, we, we want this thing to be here if we're the Quant family forever. That is so incredibly different to the behavior that we see in places like the States, less so Australia, but to some degree, where the behavior that's being rewarded is this ultra-aggressive and incredibly highly geared um, behavior where we're either borrowing money or using equity capital, particularly to pay our staff, um, and just wanting to grow like stink, as if, as if things can grow ad, ad infinitum. And also, and in fact, if they're investing for growth, it'd be fine. But largely, we're borrowing to buy back stock. Now, that'll work until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, we're just going to end up with a lot of debt and nothing on the asset side of the ledger to justify it. We just mm-hmm. will have shrunk our asset, sorry, our share count and end up with a, with a um, higher share price, all other things being equal. So, so in that context, a business like what I've just described, looks, it just looks so delightful as someone who wants to invest over long periods of time. Okay, at this stage, we should also put in a disclaimer in that these, we're not uh, recommending that anyone goes mm. out and buys BMW shares, but um, they Precisely. should talk to their financial advisor and um, have their own needs um, assessed. Yeah. Um, and and I, I want to take you up on that because yeah. I, I do really want to impress upon people. If you don't think you need financial advice and you can't afford it, you probably need it most. And if you think you're terribly clever and you don't need financial advice because you're really 
you know, too sophisticated to need it. Well, that's crazy. You know, Rafael Nadal has a coach. Do you think he knows a lot about tennis? <laughs> he knows a hell of a lot about tennis. Mm-hmm. So why would he have a coach? It's yep. accountability. It's um, people reflecting your own behaviors and statements back to you. You know, what last year you told me you wanted to save for this and you've gone and done that holiday in Europe. What's going on? That kind of stuff is incredibly valuable. And, and the nature of Australia's saving system and our superannuation system with a huge pool of capital, so 2.4 trillion, whatever it is, and massive discretion or, or, or very significant discretion with the user of it, is we, we don't see that anywhere else in the world. That's, that's nowhere else in the world. And we've had 28 years since a recession and super was bought in about the same time we had our last recession, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's positioning people for failure if they don't get advice and if they don't take it seriously and get a coach in this stuff, they're just going to, they're, they're not doing themselves any favors. So it really is important to get advice. That's, that's a great analogy <clears throat> saying that it's, it's having a financial coach yes. to, to help with your investments. But yes. if someone is going to go and see a financial advisor, what sort of questions should they be asking, asking them to make sure that um, they're being looked after, that their interests are being looked after? Good, good question. I, I'd suggest that it's about, it's about, having a sense of trust that the other person is both qualified and and ethical i don't know of any way to prove that a priori it's mm-hmm. difficult because you know these are sort of human interactions which are difficult but what people 100% can do is contact financial planners in their vicinity ask them just for a quick one-on-one meeting for half an hour everybody wants to do business development so business development is investing in your own business, right? So if you're a lawyer, an accountant, a financial planner, an engineer, or whatever, you want to be talking to people to get new business. So please don't think it's an imposition on them. It's the reverse. It's how they grow their business. Go and see them. Go and talk to them. Go and ask them in general terms about your circumstances and what you should do and how they can help you and whatever. And then you might want to take a few up on the first consultation. And I think by the time you have a proper consultation, you probably want to pay them just for their time. I mean, these people are professionals. And and once you've done that, then you can be pretty assured that at least you've given yourself the tools to, to know that you, you might be in good hands. We've got a listener question. Great. This is from Mackenzie. Related to ethical investments, many technologies that we have the privilege of utilising today wouldn't be possible if not for mining. Many commodities used in the manufacturing of renewable energy technologies require mining also. However, where does one draw the line when some mining companies have been caught up in human rights violations and have serious negative impacts? Is it possible to invest ethically in mining? Kind regards, Mackenzie. Yeah, it's a great question. The thing about ethical investing is ethics are personal. This is what I find. I'm just going to stray a little bit from the from the topic of the question, just briefly. And and the finest minds in the world have thought about ethics for three thousand years. So, the the notion that people can sort of tick all the boxes with a, an investment product and say this is an ethical investment, I think is really strange. So coal is the the the, the really pointy end of the spear here, where I, have, I don't have any question that we actually need quite a bit of coal for quite a while. And if we want to shut miners down, so, so, like, so, so half of the world's seaborne metallurgical coal comes out of BHP Mitsubishi Alliance in Queensland. 
We do in total about 450 million tonne of coal in this country. And metallurgical coal is the... Goes into steelmaking. Yeah, it's not for making... No, so we do about 180 million tonne of metallurgical coal and then, you know, 270-ish of thermal. The problem is if we want to shut that down and and we tell ourselves we're being ethical in doing it, we must know that that will get replaced by some other unit of coal. And we know where those units of coal will come from. They'll come from domestic Chinese production, which is the biggest industry in the world. They'll come from Indonesia. They might come from Mongolia or Mozambique. Might come from Colombia. All of those units of coal are less efficient than the one that's coming out of Australia. So Australia has this lovely, clean, low-sulfur, high-calorific-value coal, and it's in general quite dry as well. That is comparatively more or less damaging than any other unit of coal, basically, that, that you're going to get anywhere in the world. So we, it's, a, it's a very fraught question, this thing about ethics, because if we don't understand the full playing field, we can actually really do ourselves a disservice. And, and to put that in context, don't think that 450 million tonne coming out of Australia is a big number. China burns 3.5 billion tonne a year. Mm. So we're going to be a rounding error, and we're going to replace our coal with lower quality, higher sulfur coal, that's a bad outcome. That's an unethical outcome, right? So, you know, specifically to Mackenzie's question, which is more about, I think, sort of labor relations, every significant mining company releases in their annual report um, an ESG section. You you know how many people they hurt or kill. Um, You know what they're doing environmentally. And, And if one wants to own one of these businesses, you just have to understand the nature of that business. And these are really significant things. They're not, these are not feel-good, tree-hugging type things. If you're doing things poorly environmentally and you're hurting and killing people in your operations, you have no operational control. That's a, that's a bad operation, right? Not just because it hurts people. It's because, you know, from a process control perspective, that's bad practice. So, so yeah, you have to take that stuff really seriously. And, but it's all disclosed. It's all in the annual accounts. It's all you know there to know. So, you know, right at the pointy end of the spear, we're very interested in cobalt. Um, you know, that that's a really fraught. And that's bit. and that's the the um, where you have the miners in the Congo. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it's a huge problem. Mm. Um, and so, so we, need, people, we need cobalt. Everything's got cobalt in it yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the mobile phone battery in front of, in front of me right now has you know it's probably an eight one one. So it's got in the the battery will have you know eight percent cobalt. So you know that's it's there. It's real. If I'm picking it up and talking into it, I I need to ethically own up to that but what you can do is know that the businesses you're investing in are either so so, um, there's a verification thing coming in around um, ethical sourcing of cobalt Uh, apples move to full ethical uh, ethically sourced cobalt etc etc so these things are all knowable and analyzable and yes you can you know pay attention to it it is as simple as reading the annual report Let's wrap up and um, have a look at uh, Platinum, where you work, Platinum Asset Management. Right, so we're about 100 people in total, about 35 in the investment team. We run just on 25 billion Australian dollars, and and it's totally global. So we've got very rough numbers, about 20% of our money in North America, about 20 in Europe, about 20 in China, then 10 in Japan, and other Asia is most of the rest. More philosophically, what we are trying to do is buy cheap stuff and sell expensive stuff. 
The reason we're trying to do that is because we want to be custodians of people's capital. So we're not happy when we get a bit left behind by markets, but we're not terribly sad when we think they're being crazy. So when they're being really exaggerated and wanting to send valuations to the moon, we're happy not to participate because what we want to avoid is that 2000, 2007, uh, 87 style event where you get huge drawdowns because of the incredible excitement that went in there. So we'd much rather a, a BMW to a Netflix, that, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, people can invest um, via a number of ways. I mean, you can even buy platinum asset management as a stock itself. Or, yeah. Um, you've got manage. Sorry, um, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, all we want to do, we, we do want to avoid sort of product proliferation for the sake of it. So, so, but what we do want to do is give people as many ways of accessing what we do as possible. So people can buy listed investment companies. We've got a, and, and, and the virtue of that is you get a franked dividend. So there's one called uh, Platinum Capital, PMC, and Platinum Asia, PAI, on the exchange. People can buy ETF-y style things. They don't get a franked dividend. They get a distribution that's a bit lumpy. Uh, and that's PIXX for the international and PAXX for the Asian fund. Um, or people can go to our website, so platinum.com.au, and, and have a look through our you know, entire suite of eight unlisted managed funds. So, so that's International and Asia. We've got a consumer fund, a brands fund, an unhedged fund, which is long only, a tech fund, uh, a healthcare fund. Um, I'm forgetting someone and they'll kill me, but that's all right. A Japan, a Japan fund and a European fund. What we've always sought to avoid is decision-making by committee and consensus. So if we're, all, if we're all of one mind and we think that we know something, all of us all together, we're almost definitely wrong because we're missing something. You know, nothing is ever certain. Um, so, so people must avoid the sense that markets are in any sense mechanical and, and we can know before an event what the outcome will be like a machine. So I pull a lever here and a ball drops out over there. It's not how it works. It's much more like fluid dynamics or, or material sciences when things are put under stress. We don't know when they'll fail, but they, they will fail. You know, we, we don't know when an avalanche will happen, but we know when the risk is high. These things are unknowable, but we know the probabilities around them. That, that's a much better way of thinking about what markets are and, and how they work. It's a massive chaotic system. And when that system gets stressed, then you want to be very careful. And so what I started off by talking about with this very, very high valuation, that is a system that's stressed. That is a system that's very different to its history on average and is not behaving like it has in the past. That that looks a bit like an avalanche. Now, I can't tell you what snowflake makes the avalanche happen, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that there's some risk of it, that, that there's this huge divergence in valuation in stuff, and it looks very risky. And then at the other end, you've got all this other stuff that's hopelessly undervalued. And I can't tell you when that will not be undervalued, but I can tell you it is. And I can tell you it's pretty, that that looks in reverse, it actually looks very, very safe. Mm -hmm. Provided we understand the balance sheet and how the business works, um, the stuff that's undervalued and feels lousy, it's probably very safe because it's cheap. You know, price is the main determinant of risk. So, So that's how we think about the world. Julian, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Phil, very much for the time. Greatly appreciate it. It's great. Great interview. Thank you very much. 
Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any shares based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Christopher Sulos of Garlic Breath Studios for all the fantastic help with the music production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.